We've been following the life of Jesus Christ. We've seen the King anointed by the Holy Spirit. He was baptized to fulfill all righteousness for the pleasure of his Father. So our great athlete, we're watching the perfect race. Only Jesus could run the perfect race of life, and we see him now off the blocks. He started, and his first step is one of obedience, total submission to his Father's will, pleasing his Father. His next step that we will see is into the wilderness for a test that was appointed by his Father. I wonder, how do you do with tests? How do you do with tests? Do you work well under pressure? So-so? Or is the possibility of failure too much pressure for you? Well, Jesus Christ passed every test. He's perfect. In fact, you can write this theological word down, Jesus Christ is impeccable. He's impeccable. That means that not only did he not fail, but Jesus Christ could not fail. He could not fail, would never fail under any pressure. And then some, you know, say, well, then, did he really experience the kind of pressure that we go through? Was it that difficult under temptation if he couldn't ever fail? It seems like Jesus' perfect life was easy. Well, that's not the case. Just because he could not fail does not mean he didn't feel the weight of the pressure of temptation. You know, a little sprout, a little bean sprout out of the ground, that little sprout will easily fall over with a little gust of wind. Fontana winds, that sprout is done. But it is the cedars, the oaks, that withstand under the gale force winds, and they stand strong. Which experiences more pressure? The oaks, the cedars, or the little sprout? Jesus Christ withstood unfathomable pressure. He withstood under great temptation, temptation that you and I, poor sinners, would fail every time. But He never failed. And because of that... We can be righteous. We can be perfect in Him. That's the point of this test. That's the point of this great event when Jesus was tempted and yet did not fail and conquered Satan. Hebrews 4.15, He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. He's perfect. He's perfect. And so... We come to this great event where he displays his perfection. He continues to fulfill all righteousness. He just got the words from his father. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we watch him continue to please his father perfectly. It's an incredible display. It's an incredible show, really. We stand in awe and amazement as we watch the perfect man race or or, uh, run the perfect race. But it's not just a show. It's not just something that we watch with amazement and go, oh, wow, that's amazing. We have to understand that this perfect race he ran, the perfect righteous life, he ran in our place. He is our great substitute. 
So when you watch him conquer each enemy, every temptation, he conquered sin, he conquered death, you know, Christian, that if you believe in him, you conquer sin. You conquer Satan. You conquer death. That's a great reality. And so him, Jesus, having victory over Satan here, has everything to do with your Christian life. And it's a great truth that we revel in. Well, before we start and we dig in, why don't I uh, open us in prayer? Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, thank you again for the beloved gift of Jesus Christ, your Son, who lived the perfect life we could not live. Praise be to Him. Glory be to Christ. Jesus, thank you for showing us not only how we ought to Uh, respond to temptation, how we can be victorious in temptation, Lord, but doing it for us, showing us and accomplishing it. And because of you, we can be righteous. We can be perfect. We can bring the Father pleasure because you did before us. Thank you for this great work. I pray that this would just result in great worship of God and, and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that dwells within us and helps us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so look down at the the Scriptures here and look at chapter 4, verse 1. I want to set up the event. These first two verses really give us the setup for what's about to take place. And there's three points in your outline underneath the setup. And the first is that Jesus was Spirit-filled. Spirit-filled. Look at verse 1. Then, so the next event after the baptism, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Notice, this is a divine appointment. Satan doesn't jump out of the bushes to surprise Jesus. Jesus was led to this temptation by the Holy Spirit. This is a divinely appointed test, a test of Christ's righteousness. Matthew, the Gospel account of Matthew, says he was led by the Spirit. Luke's account says that he was full of the Spirit. They are one and the same in this context. To be led by the Spirit is to be filled with the Spirit, is to walk by the Spirit, is to live by the Spirit. Galatians 5 makes those things synonymous. There are a variety of verbs to communicate the same thing. To be led by the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, is to be Spirit-dependent. Spirit-dependent. It means you are dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ, in His perfect righteous life, chooses to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. To rely on the Spirit, to lead Him and to rely on the Spirit, to empower Him to perform the miracles that He performed. And that sets a great precedent for our Christian life. That's how we ought to live, the Christian life. Filled, led, walking in the Holy Spirit. Jesus shows us how it's done. Galatians 5.16 says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So, Christian, you want to be set up well against temptation in your life. You want to stand strong like Christ. Then you ought to have a Spirit-filled battle plan. You ought to have a Spirit-filled battle plan, being led by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. Four ways to, you know, four attributes, I guess, of the Spirit-filled battle plan. What does it mean to be Spirit-filled and Spirit 
led. Point number one, acknowledge your dependence upon Him. Daily. Through prayer. It could be as simple as this. Father, I pray that Your Spirit would lead me today. Lead me in my decisions. Lead me in my conversations. Lead me in my emails, my text messages. I want to be led by Your Spirit. I want to be led away from temptation and in the way of obedience. It starts with just acknowledging His presence. The Holy Spirit indwells every believer. He is in you. He is with you. Unfortunately, though, He is often the most neglected person of the Trinity. We forget that the Holy Spirit's with us. He's in us. And so start by just acknowledging His presence and acknowledging His lead. Number two, take up the Spirit's sword. What's the Spirit's sword? It's the Word of God. Take it up daily. The Spirit works through the Word. Psalm 119.11 says, I will hide your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. You want to avoid sin when you're tempted? Hide the Word of God in your heart. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Number three, listen for the Spirit's conviction. We all face temptation. And you're driving on the freeway and you, you see the billboard. And it tempts you. Or you have a difficult person at work come in and mouth off and, and say something inappropriate and that's a temptation. We all face temptation daily. But how do we make the right decision in that temptation? There's a little conviction that you feel. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, it's that little nudge on your heart. I know what I should do and I know what I shouldn't do. It's the Holy Spirit working with your conscience and the Word of God that you know and there's a little prick, a little nudge. Simply listen to it and obey. Listen and obey His conviction. It's the Spirit working within you. So number one, acknowledge your dependence upon Him daily. Number two, take up the Spirit's sword. Number three, listen for the Spirit's conviction. And number four, choose the fruit of the Spirit. In every decision, in every conversation, choose love. Choose joy. Choose peace, choose patience, choose kindness, choose goodness, choose faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Choose the fruit of the Spirit. Choose to walk by the fruit of the Spirit and not the fruit of the flesh. This is a great way to be prepared every day to fight temptation. That hits. Temptation hits all of us in different ways. This is a great way to be, have the Spirit-filled battle plan to fight and stand against it. Jesus Christ chose to be led by the Spirit. He was into the wilderness. And so we should do the same. Jesus was Spirit-filled and or but stomach empty. That's point number two. His stomach was empty. Look at verse two. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Well, yeah, 40 days and 40 nights. Could you imagine? I can't even fathom it. Missing all those meals? Incredible. I want to let you know that this is, this is where I would fail the test. Not having, not having food. My wife knows I'm not, an, I'm not a happy person when I don't have food in my stomach. In fact, I was tested in this way on the way back from our trip in Idaho. We had an early morning. We had a long day of travel ahead of us, and I missed breakfast. What do you think I did when, once we landed for our layover in Seattle? Where's food? I need food. I need food. And, and of course, we know that with physical weaknesses, we are more susceptible to failure, aren't we? 
when we're hungry, when we're tired. That's when temptation strikes and it hits us hard and heavy. What we see in this account, though, is that the Lord Jesus Christ performs on an empty stomach. Incredible. I mean, think about the psychological impact of this. We would be loopy after 40 days of no food. Hungry, tired, we would fail, surely. But Jesus doesn't. Even though he is physically hungry, he's spirit-filled. He's full, dependent upon his God, dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And he stands firm in the face of significant attack. I am in awe of him. Jesus Christ is incredible. Does what I could never do. Thirdly, the setup here, who do we see that stands against Jesus? We see Satan tempting. Satan comes to tempt. Jesus was led to be tempted by the devil. And he comes at the beginning of verse 3, tempting. The tempter came. The tempter came. Notice that the snake slithers over after he's hungry. After he fasted. I mean, Satan's got to think, this is my only chance when he's physically hungry. It's my only shot against this great and mighty warrior. We were reminded, when we think of and we see Satan tempting, we're reminded of the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, Jesus, or sorry, not Jesus, uh, Satan shows up on the scene and what is he doing? He's tempting. And what was his approach to Eve? It was very subtle. It's a subtle question about her trust in God and his word. He said this, did God actually say, little twist, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Satan's approach is subtle, but his purpose is direct in his temptation. He attacks trust in God. That's the bottom line of every temptation that we face. Do you trust God and will you obey him? That's the end of every temptation. That's the bottom line. That's what the tempter is seeking to do. He, if he could just cause you to doubt his word a little, if he could cause you to believe a little lie, then he can dismantle the entire relationship between you and your God. That's what he did in the garden. And that's what, exactly what we see him doing here with Jesus Christ. He attacks trust in God. And we saw that the first Adam failed the test, didn't he? Gave in, ate the forbidden fruit, and ultimately showed a distrust in God, in his sin. Now the question for us is, will the second Adam do the same? Will he break under the pressure? The answer is no. Jesus Christ withstands under temptation perfectly. And that's a great truth. I want us to see, as I had previously said, that this is, this is more than a how-to tutorial, okay? This is more than a how-to YouTube video of how to fight temptation. Jesus doesn't just come with his list of tips and tricks on how to fight the wiles of the devil. No, this is, a, this is more than a show. This is Jesus Christ earning your righteousness, performing as your substitute. It should cause us to worship Him and to be in awe of Him. Also, there are good principles and applications for us to learn in fighting temptation. Namely, that we should walk by the Spirit and, and wield the sword. What does Jesus say in response to every temptation? As it is written, as it is written, as it is written. Christian, how helpful would it be for you to know the Word of God that way? 
in response to every temptation you face every day, you have a verse that speaks to it. So that you're dwelling on God's word and you know what he says and you can choose to obey it in the face of temptation. That's helpful and that is good. And so there's a lot that we can draw from watching Jesus uh, perform in this way and fight temptation. But I don't want us to be so busy taking notes that we miss the wonder of this. Jesus Christ conquered every enemy so that you and I can be righteous in him. That's the point of this test. This is the snake crusher. He destroys Satan and his vices. He stands against them, trusting in God and His Word. In Jesus Christ, Christian, no enemy, not even Satan, can snatch you out of His hand. Here is our champion. Let's watch Him work. So that's the setup for the temptations. And Jesus is hit with three tests. Three tests of His righteousness. And you'll notice, every temptation comes down to a bottom line of trust and obedience. Do you trust God? And will you obey Him? The same question hits us every day. When temptation strikes, the question is, do you trust God and will you obey Him? Let's look at temptation one. Do you trust His care for you? Temptation one. Do you trust His care for you? Look at verse 3. And the tempter came, when? When he was hungry. And he said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus is hungry. Satan tempts him with food. But it's more than that. It's more than that. It's more than... Uh, Satan putting a Big Mac in front of Jesus and saying, hey, eat, you're hungry. As if the Son of Man would break under such little pressure. No, this is, this is bigger. Satan is questioning, with this question, the Father's care for him. He approaches when he's hungry, essentially saying, look at where he left you. Here you are, Son of Man, the King, I presume, and you're hungry? You're tired? You're weak? Does God care for you? Does your Father care for you? You know, I know what you could do, O King. You have the power. Make your own food. Take care of yourself, is what Satan proposes. Take care of yourself. Stop depending on your Father and take matters into your own hands. Take the reins yourself. You don't need Him. Even in the Garden of Eden, the temptation was similar. It was more than the attractiveness of the food that caused Eve to eat it. She saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She could be self-dependent. She didn't need God. She could be like Him. That's where all temptation takes us. Towards self-care, self-dependence, independence of God. I wonder, have you been tempted to doubt God's care for you? Maybe in recent events, circumstances. Why did I get sick, Lord? Why is life so hard? Why did I lose my job? Why do the bills keep piling up? You look at the circumstances around you and you feel physically weak, hungry, deprived maybe. 
And then you begin to doubt, does God care for me? Does he really care for me? He says he loves me. He says he'll provide for my needs. And yet here I am, wanting. Satan comes and whispers into your ear, look at where you are. Does he care for you? What's the answer? Jesus gives him the answer. In verse 4, look at what he says. He answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here's what Jesus says in response. I'm not hungry. I'm full at my father's buffet, feeding on his word. Yes, he cares for me. I'm good, thank you. <laughs> Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, and the context is helpful for us. Moses says to Israel on behalf of God, hey, you remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Remember how he led you. He did so to humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. By the way, did Israel pass the test or fail? They failed. They were complaining at every turn. They did not trust God, even though he provided and cared for them. Verse 3, he humbled you, this is in Deuteronomy, and let you hunger, but fed you manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God provides for your needs. He showed it to you. He proved it to you in the wilderness. Trust his word that he'll provide for you in the future. More than your physical needs, the word of God feeds your soul. If you trust and obey it, you will be blessed. Here, Jesus has a similar test before him. He's hungry. Temptation strikes. Will you trust your father and obey his word despite the severity of your circumstances? He says, yes, I'll take my father's bread over anyone else's, even the bread I can make myself. Total dependence, total trust in his father's care for him. Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Jesus says, I'm not taking one step off this path. I'll choose to depend on every word. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in what? The law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Jesus says, I'm taking my place next to God's stream. I trust his word. I trust him with all my heart. Jesus says it another way in John 4, 34. He says, my food is to do the will of my Father. To depend upon Him for every step in my life. This is so often where we fail. When life doesn't go our way, we quickly resort to our own plans. Oh, I better start caring for myself. I better come up with something. Circumstances are out of my control. So obviously, I'm the only one that can fix this. No. In that difficulty, in that trouble, Turn your eyes to your Father who cares for you. Trust Him. Not that you sit on the couch and sit on your hands and say, I'm not going to do anything then. God's going to do all the work. No, no, no. Trust His care for you and walk in His steps. He will provide for you. He promised so. His Word promises so. 
How well do you know that? How well do you know that God the Father cares for you? Jesus knew it surely. He would stake his life on it. Round one, King Jesus, pass the first test. Round two, temptation number two, do you trust his power for you? Satan challenges the exercise of Jesus' power in this temptation. Look at verse 5. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. The holy city is Jerusalem. The temple is the center of religious activity in the city. It's Herod's temple. It's beautiful, glorious, big. And the pinnacle of the temple overlooks the courtyard. Jesus would be able to see all the activity taking place. Some commentators speculate that this is later in the morning. Uh, Early in the morning, the priests usually would go up to the pinnacle and oversee the early morning sacrifices before the gates were opened. Some commentators suggest that this could have been late morning, so the gates are already open and people are filling the courtyards. There's a lot of people around that would see what Satan is suggesting Jesus should do. And so look at Satan's temptation in verse 6. He said to him, while he's up there on the pinnacle, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... Oh, now Satan uses the Scripture. It is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, if this was just a simple test of power... Satan could have taken Jesus to any cliff or big rock, right? To see if he could really, you know, God would save him from being hurt. But Satan takes him to the pinnacle of the temple. Why? Because he wants Jesus to display his power publicly. Publicly. Not God's way, but he wants wants him to take God's power into his own hands to test God's power. Power. Essentially, you claim to be the Son of God, prove it. Prove it not only to yourself, but prove it to everyone here and show us your power. He's presuming on the power of God. Now, was Satan wrong to assume that Jesus has power over angels and authority over them? No, he's right. Jesus does have power and authority over the angels. Was Satan wrong to say that the angelic hosts would come and aid the Messiah? No, not necessarily. That is a quote from Scripture. Psalm 91. The issue is that Satan wants Jesus to test God's power, to presume upon it, to take God's power into his own hands, to essentially put God in a corner and say, you perform or I will. Again, this is Satan saying, hey, do it your way, Jesus, not your Father's way. Take the reins into your own hands. Prove that you are truly the Son of God. Now, we fall into this temptation too. We try to make God's power work for us in our way, the way we want it to. You might have thought this or even prayed this. God... According to 1 Timothy 2.4, it says, You desire all people to be saved. Is that right, God? Well, then prove it. Save the president so that we can turn this country around. Right? Maybe you thought that. 
Maybe you say, Jesus, I know that you have power over sickness and disease, which he does. So prove it, God, and heal my child. God, if you get me out of this crummy situation, if you get me out of this trouble, if you show me your power, well, then I'll follow you. Then I'll surrender my life and get rid of my idols. I'm reminded of what my dad would tell me. I'm sure you've been told this. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because God can, He does have power over all things, doesn't mean you should presume that He will. You don't put God in a corner and tell Him to exercise His power your way. You surrender to His Word, His design, His plan, knowing He's all-powerful, knowing He could heal the child, knowing He could save the president, knowing that He could get you out of that difficult situation. But your duty, Christian, is to trust Him. Trust Him. God, your power, your way. Your will be done. Not mine. Your will be done. You know that presuming on God's will, putting Him to the test, is ultimately doubting Him. John MacArthur writes this, No matter how noble and important we may think our reasons are, to test God is to doubt Him. Essentially, you're saying, I need to see it to believe it, God. That's not faith. That's doubt. Testing God is doubting God, and testing God is sin. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16 in His response. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. To presume on God's power that way, to test him is sin. It's wrong. The creation doesn't say to the creator, do things my way. So Jesus responds perfectly. Again, he will not bend outside or around God's will. He will surrender his will to his fathers. He will exercise his power Eventually, and he does, he conquers death in in his resurrection. Incredible displays of power. He performs miracle signs, way better than jumping off a temple and being caught by angels. But he does it God's way. Totally surrendered to the will of his Father. Trusting in him completely. Round one, do you trust his care for you? Yes. Yes. Pass. Round two, do you trust his power for you? Yes, yes. He passes two tests, two incredible temptations, and now round three, temptation number three. Do you trust His kingdom for you? Do you trust His kingdom for you? Look at verse 8. Again, next, the devil took him to a very high mountain. And he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now, we don't know the exact location of this mountain. You might think, maybe he took him to the highest mountain peak on earth. What is it? Uh, Everest? Maybe he took him to Everest. Well, even from Everest. Have any of you hiked Everest? No, I haven't either. Um, even from Everest, you can't see the whole world. Right? There's limitations. So this is obviously a, a supernatural Jesus, Satan does take him to a high mountain, but 
Jesus supernaturally shows him, maybe by way of vision, all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, because that's what the text tells us. So surely, Jesus isn't just looking into Jerusalem. That's a tiny piece of it. To the west, Jesus likely saw the economic and military power of Rome. Maybe he got a glimpse of the Colosseums, the architecture. Saw Rome and its roads and all its glory. To the south, maybe Jesus saw the pyramids of Egypt filled with their treasures. To the east, he likely saw the Silk Road leading into China, the Han Dynasty, one of its golden ages at this time. Jesus saw across the oceans to various native tribes and empires, including the undiscovered Mayan Empire, of which Jesus knew full well. He's God. He's creator. He saw it all. Everything that this little blue and green ball called earth could offer him. Everything. All the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All the natural resources... All the treasures, all the power, all the geography, everything. And Satan says to him, Satan dares say to him, look at verse 9, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Well, finally, Satan shows him his cards. He tells him exactly what he wants. He says, hey, maybe we could sweeten this deal. I could get what I want, Jesus, and you can get what you want too. The kingdom. The earthly kingdom. Now, Satan knows Scripture. He's used Scripture. He knows enough to twist Scripture. He can twist a few words to get what he wants out. I believe that Satan knows Psalm 2. And we remember that in Psalm chapter 2, the Father offers the Son a kingdom. Psalm 2 verse 8 says, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So Satan knows there's another offer already on the table for Jesus Christ, the Father's kingdom, the heavenly kingdom. And now Satan says, hey, I can maybe get you that kingdom. But let's change the terms of the contract just a little. This kingdom you would get now. Immediate gratification. Wouldn't have to suffer. Wouldn't have to go through the inconvenience of hunger. Wouldn't have to be mocked. Wouldn't have to be accused and abused by your subordinates. You wouldn't have to be rejected. You wouldn't have to be beaten. You wouldn't have to be crucified. You wouldn't have to suffer for this kingdom. You could have it now. Take what's yours, Jesus. Take it now. But, here's a slight change. Take it from me, not from your Father. Take it for me, not for your Father. See, for Jesus... To take Satan's kingdom his way is high treason. It's a change of loyalty. That's what Satan's wanting. Stop being so loyal to your father 
and humbling yourself according to his will to take his kingdom, take mine. Take mine. Take it now. Immediate gratification. Again, do you, Jesus Christ, trust your heavenly Father? Will you take your Father's kingdom His way, or will you take Satan's kingdom His way? And you know, again, this is how temptation hits us, doesn't it? This should remind us of the way Satan and his devices tempt us. He whispers in our ear, take power, take money, take the pleasure. Take all that this world has to offer, but take it my way. Take it now. Immediate gratification. Don't wait on the Lord. Don't wait for the Lord's kingdom. Because you and I both know, Christian, if you know your Bible, you know that God promises in His kingdom better and greater pleasure than this world could ever offer. For you. God promises a position in His kingdom to rule alongside Christ. That's more power than you can get on this earth. The riches of heaven are far greater than all the gold and Bitcoin that the world can offer. God promises greater, better, His kingdom. And yet, how often do you and I settle for the temporary? We settle for the immediate grab, the instant gratification. I want pleasure my way, not God's way. I want to take power the world's way, not God's way. I want the world's riches, not God's riches. Oh, we are such fools to fall for that. Satan throws Jesus' way a similar temptation. Take your kingdom, Jesus, but take it now and take it my way and abandon your Father. So what does Jesus do? How does he respond to this temptation? Look at verse 10. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. Get out of here. You're done. For it is written, I love that. He quotes the scriptures. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. I will not abandon my father. I will not commit high treason against his kingdom. Wow. Man. You and I, poor sinner, us together. We would break. We would break against any of these temptations, one or if not all of them. But Jesus Christ does not. He does not give in. He does not compromise. He stands firm on the Word of God. Praise and glory be to Christ. Praise and glory be to Christ, the champion. He conquers for us. And Jesus, by the way, sets a precedent for how we ought to live. In light of this temptation, when the world offers you temporary pleasure, temporary power, immediate gratification, we ought to, just like Christ, Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And you know what? All these things will be added to you. Far better is in the kingdom of God. Far better is in store for you, Christian, if you would just wait and be patient. And endure this life of suffering for his name's sake. We need to, you know, there was that experiment with the kids, the psychological experiment, right? Where you put a marshmallow or whatever cookie in front of them and, and you say, you can have this now or you could have two or three if you would just wait five minutes. What did they find? Inevitably, just like us, some of the kids 
grabbed the immediate gratification, went for the, the quick fix. We do that too, don't we? Oh, but if we would just wait, if we would be patient, if we would trust the Lord wholeheartedly, He offers far more in heaven and His kingdom for you, doesn't He? Will you trust your Father and obey Him? Matthew 4.11, look at what happens. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Satan leaves with his tail between his legs. He was defeated. And the, Satan, the angels draw vessels from the well of God's supply. They rush to the sun to minister to his needs. God does care for him. There is great power in his humble obedience. He will inherit the kingdom. God's way. And in that, accomplish our salvation. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, if we look at our champion, he fends off every one of the devil's darts. He continues to fulfill all righteousness. Every step of his race was perfect. The perfect race, the perfect Savior, pleasing his heavenly Father. In, every, in response to every temptation, he chooses his Father's will over everyone else's, even his own human desires. No one comes between the beloved Son and His heavenly Father. No one. No one comes between the love of the Son and the love of His Father. No one. Now get this, Christian. Because of Christ, our champion, Romans 8, 35, 37-39 applies. Look at this verse. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through who? Through Him, our champion, who loved us. Look at verse 38. For I am sure, I'm confident, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers... That includes Satan, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what he did for you when he withstood and passed this great test. Let's close in prayer. Jesus, all we can say is thank you. With great love and adoration, awe, watching you withstand every test. You did not bend, you did not break. You endured for the sake of pleasing your Father and for the sake of us, poor sinners. We fail every day. We know that, Lord, and we sin and fall short of the glory of God. But thanks be to you, in your perfect life, you cover us in your righteousness and we can stand perfect, blameless, righteous before a holy God. That's an incredible gift. God, I pray for anybody in this room who does not yet know Jesus, pray that they would completely trust in him and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. 
They would see his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection as the only way to be saved. I pray that you'd grant them the repentance that leads to life today. They would turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. Lord, remind us, Christians, every day of what you did for us. Remind us. Help us to follow and walk in your footsteps, to be led by the Spirit, and to live by the Word. Help us, we pray. We can't do it without you. In Jesus' name, amen.